You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. Dr. Jason Glass is the superintendent of Jefferson County School District. Serving 84,000 students, Jefferson County is the largest district in Colorado. It encompasses 800 square miles, and the school district serves urban, suburban, and rural communities west of Denver. Before Jefferson County, Dr. Glass served as superintendent in Vail, and before that, he was the state chief in Iowa. Dr. Glass has promoted deeper learning across the 155 site-based diverse school options in Jefferson County. Glass anticipated the pandemic closure, developed a plan, and shared it with his team. On March 13th, when schools closed, people knew what to do and the transition was relatively seamless for learners and for teachers. Let's listen in as Dr. Glass talks to Tom about Jefferson County's transition to remote learning. Hey, Jason Glass, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. Thanks. Glad to be here. Excited to be invited. Hey, Jason, uh, how did you become a social studies teacher in Hazard, Kentucky? Well, uh, I grew up in Kentucky and my parents were educators there. Really, our whole family has been involved in education in Kentucky. So it just kind of was a natural uh, fit for me. Uh, you grew up was, in Hazard? I didn't. I grew up in a little town near Fort Knox, but my first teaching job was in Hazard, which is an Appalachian coal town in the eastern part of the state. So, Jason, uh, 12 years before you started teaching there, I was working in the mines in Hazard. No kidding. Yeah, yeah well, it's amazing how many people have crossed <laughs> places, uh, cr- crossed uh, uh, paths with that little town. So I, I was a, a coal mine engineer in Pennsylvania, Colorado, uh, Eastern Kentucky, Hazard, Pineville, Paintsville. Uh, long before I became a public school superintendent, I, I thought I was the only one. But I, when I was back in Kentucky last year, I ran into a gentleman that had had been a coal miner and become a superintendent. So there's a small colleague, small small cohort of us. Right. You, you got you to gotta appear that's done that. Yeah, it's a great, great community and beautiful part of the state. And uh, I learned a lot about the importance of traditions. Uh, Hazard is a, is a community that really loves its schools and the schools have served the community well. And I learned a lot about that, that importance of community tradition. It, that's a good way to put it. It is a place that values its traditions. And if you're an outsider there, um, one is often coached on the traditions uh, and and caution in crossing those traditions. Um, how did you get to Vail um, from Kentucky? You, you, it looks like you had a stop at the Colorado Department of Education in the early uh, 2000s, right? I did. Yeah. Well, you know, growing up in Kentucky, my and my parents being educators, we would travel in the summers and uh, we had this Winnebago. We would load up and go for basically the whole month of June somewhere. And frequently we'd come to the West and visit the mountains. And so that's where I really fell in love with, uh, with mountains and with Colorado. So while we were living and I was growing up in Kentucky, I always had in the back of my mind that I'd love the chance to live and work in, in Colorado. So uh, finished my uh, teaching uh, up in and hazard, and I was always really interested in sort of the policy and uh, politics side of education. So I was working on a um, master's program at the University of Kentucky, and as I was finishing that up, I I landed this job at the Colorado Department of Education, which got me out to Denver, a little close to, closer to the mountains, right on the edge, and uh, fell in love with the state, and uh, was out here for uh, about 
about seven years um, before uh, getting called to relocate into Ohio and Iowa, but that's that's further down the story. You, so you spent about four years in Vail. You went away, and then uh, you were you're able to come back as superintendent in Vail. Um, Vail's an interesting, be- beautiful place, but in- interesting challenges serving that community, right? Yeah. Well, when I was working at the uh, Colorado Department of Education, that was you know right on the edge of the mountains. But I always just really wanted to get back to living in that mountain town. And you know, Hazard was kind of like that too. It was a, it was a mountain town, certainly a different industry that was driving it, but still had that mountainous terrain. Um, so uh, loved loved Eagle County and loved Vale. That's uh, the ski resort, one of the two ski resorts that's there in Eagle County. So uh, my wife, Sarah, and I uh, moved up there. I was the human resources director there for a few years. Uh, it's an it's a, a great community. Uh, it has all the things that one would expect with a really um, high-priced resort ski town. Um, but what a lot of people don't also realize is that it has uh, this working class um a, a lot of working class folks that make right. the economy go right. like, uh, uh, and a lot of them are, are Mexican and Guatemalan immigrants who are working in the hotels and working in the restaurants. So the, the school system was served really both ends of that spectrum. We had kids from really affluent, wealthy backgrounds that had relocated to that community for the ski area. And then we had a lot of the working uh, workers' families that were also served in the school. So it was about half white and half Hispanic, and about half of the kids were English language learners. So it was a, it was a great place to spend a few years working, great community. Uh, Jason, you had the chance to serve as the state chief in Iowa. I think that was the last time we we talked, and uh, you, you did some really great work there. Uh, why, why was uh, being a state chief an appealing role, and how did you land that job? Well, it's kind of an interesting story. I was connected with a guy that was uh, – uh, he w- had been a professor at Vanderbilt uh, named Jim Guthrie, uh, and he was working at the uh, George W. Bush Institute uh, in their education policy area. And uh, Terry Branstad had been reelected governor there. Um, you know, he had been governor for four terms in the 80s and 90s, was out for uh, several years, and then came back and won a fifth term. And uh, so Governor Branstad called Jim Guthrie and said, I need some names of somebody who you'd recommend to look at for the state chief here. And Jim passed my name on to the governor. And I flew out to Iowa. I was actually living in Ohio at that point, working for a nonprofit called Battelle for Kids. And uh, interviewed with the governor and the lieutenant governor in a, a room full of people that I didn't know for about three hours. And, uh, you know, I got in, got in my rental car and drove back to the uh, – airport in Des Moines and thought, well, that was an interesting experience. I had no idea what was going to happen. And they called me at the airport and said, you're the guy. Uh, So that's how quickly it happened. Uh, And and so I got a chance to work for Governor Branstad for three years as the state chief there. They call that position uh, director. And we worked on um, an education reform bill uh, that took us a couple of years to get across the finish line, but it really established a, a great um, teacher leader structure uh, for the whole state and did a lot to elevate the teaching profession and to try and recruit uh, top talent into the teaching profession and then to provide them different career paths uh, so that they could 
uh, have have additional career paths other than just entering administration. So really proud of that work. And uh, but but the mountains called me. And so when the superintendency opened back up in Eagle County, uh, I applied uh, for that, got that job, spent uh, four great years back in Eagle County as the superintendent uh, before Jeffco opened, which Jeffco is a district in the, the sort of the western third of the Denver metro area. Uh, that the, the county seat is, is golden and uh, been here in Jeffco for three years now. So been, been all over the country, had some great roles and done some great work. It's been exciting. So we should, um, so I, I did my undergrad at uh, Colorado School of Mines in Golden. So I know Jefferson County well. Um, we should explain to people it's a gigantic county. Um, it's not just a large student population, uh, about 74,000 kids. It, it's a huge county that goes from uh, really urban areas uh, well up into the mountains, and it's uh, along huge distances um, north to south. So you really serve a tremendous uh, variety of terrain and um, schools with, with very different kinds of neighborhoods in Jeffco, right? Right. No, I and I can see School of Mines, your alma mater, from my office window. I'm looking at it now, so. Uh, it's just over the hill in, in Golden. Uh, and Jeffco is a, the district is about 800 square miles, a little less than that. Uh, and as you mentioned, it, it extends up into uh, the mountain areas, but it also uh, runs over right along the city and county of Denver. Uh, so there are parts of it that are uh, urban in nature, and there are parts of it that are sort of 60s and 70s suburban growth areas. There are parts of it that are new suburban growth areas. Um, and there are parts of it that are rural in nature. So it's it's really got all kinds of different communities, um, a wide range of uh, uh, demographics, people that live here, a wide range of incomes. And it's uh, politically a, a balanced community too. I, I say that it's purple. It's got, we have about a third Republicans, a third Democrats, and a third independents in the community. So uh, you, you, you work to try and find something that balances all of those different interests in, in the uh, various communities that we serve. So you've been there about three years. After um, after getting there, uh, we'd love to know about how you developed your agenda and what uh, became your priorities in that big, relatively complicated district. Well, I think my own evolution uh, as an education leader went from being, I, I would call it, I would have put myself a decade ago solidly in the education reform camp uh, that would have been advocating for greater accountability, test-based accountability, evaluations, uh, pay for performance uh, models, those sorts of things. So I, I uh, cut my teeth on doing that work and, and learning how to execute those systems. But when I was in Iowa, I had this challenge of how – the question was, how do you raise the performance of an entire state system? Um, and what I, what I really got interested in was looking at Mark Tucker's work around international benchmarking. When I started looking at these international systems, I saw that none of the high-performing ones, or a few of the high-performing ones, were using those education reform strategies as their primary drivers and improvement. Um, so 
you know, the, the system of sort of testing and ratings and all the stuff that we were working on with No Child Left Behind and with the waves of teacher evaluations and those sorts of things. Uh, none of the other countries were doing that. Uh, they were really focused on raising up the teaching profession, recruiting the brightest people in their society to become teachers and then empowering empowering um, their educators, working really hard on transforming learning to move it past just a content-based approach into a much deeper, richer form of learning. Uh, so that got me excited. And, and so I, I went to the went to Governor Branstad at that time, and I told him, I, I think we're on the wrong path. And here's what all these other systems are doing. I think we need to pivot. And kudos to him. He was uh, strong enough to um, to make that about face and, and talk to the people in his own party and in the other party that controlled the, the Senate there in Iowa um, and, and brought folks together around an agenda that we were able to get get past. But I think that was that was a major shift for me, just going from sort of an education reform frame into an international benchmarking frame. Uh, and I took that to, to Eagle County with me. And so their strategic plan and vision really is based on that international benchmarking uh, thinking. When I came to Jeffco um, three years ago, the, my predecessor had done some work around deeper learning um, and uh, deeper student experiences, skills-focused education um, before I got here. And they had a strategic plan around that. So I, I wanted to keep working on that. And I was really interested in picking it up because it, I, I was excited about it because I thought it helped us move from the sort of notion of best practice into next practice. Uh, so not not just trying to replicate things that had been done, but actually trying to make breakthroughs and make breakthroughs at scale, especially with a district that's 85,000 students the size of Jeffco. So that was a exciting professional challenge for me is to put in place a vision around what school could be and then to see if we could pull it off at a, at a large scale in a place like Jeffco. So you had a, a couple of years to work on that agenda. I, I guess in in January or February, if you'd been visiting uh, a Jeffco elementary school, and w- what kind of look fors did you have in mind? What, what did you hope to see when you visited an elementary school? Well, this community um, has long relied on a very site-based approach uh, to what a school's pedagogical or philosophical approach is. So it's, in addition to being, having all the diversity that we talked about earlier, Jeffco has very traditional sort of neighborhood schools. It has expeditionary learning schools, international baccalaureate schools. It has core knowledge focused schools. We have classical academies, Waldorf schools, Montessori, you name it. Um, There, it's been implemented here. So there's a really, wonderful diversity of education options that are available in this community, both within the districts, uh, the district managed schools and the charter schools. So there's a huge range of options that are available for people here. So what we needed was some kind of instructional approach that would transcend all of those different um, educational philosophies or strategies and try to get us something where everyone could work together. So what we what we focused on was uh, this concept of student task um, and the work that students are doing as the the greatest opportunity to sort of shift the learning that's happening to try and make it deeper and more meaningful. So if you think about a 
Montessori school or an IB school or a core knowledge focus school or an EL school, at some point, the teacher turns the work over to the student uh, and asks them to do something. So that that's the task. And that task can be repetitive, routine, purely content-based, or it can require that students um, create, communicate, problem solve, adapt to changing conditions. So we, we've done a lot of work around uh, supporting our teachers on how transform tasks might look, a lot of problem and project-based approaches, a lot of embracing the use of technology and, and how we can use that as a catalyst for that new kind of learning, um, and then trying to uh, sort of break down those those pedagogical walls between all those different kinds of schools and say, look, if we get past uh, the labels that we put on the schools from charter to neighborhood, to option magnet, um, or, or different types of uh, pedagogical philosophies at the core of it, we all want students to be prepared for their future. And that future is going to probably involve some level of content knowledge, but it's also going to involve a heck of a lot of, uh, or students are going to need a heck of a lot of skills, like being able to stand and deliver a presentation or write effectively and adapt to changing conditions and be uh, an engaged um, uh, citizen in, a, in what is a global economy. So um, so that, that outcome around having students that are really prepared for a future that's only going to get faster and faster and faster um, really drove our work around making task the centerpiece for where we, where we think change can occur. Hey listeners, it's your host Jessica. I wanted to just take a quick break to share an important resource with you. Recently, our team launched the Getting Through Microsite to support educators, leaders, and families on the path forward during this unprecedented and uncertain time. There's something there for everyone, whether you're just getting started with your transition to distance learning or you've had plans in place for a while and now have the opportunity to share your work and guidance with others. We hope this gives you a place for your voice and an opportunity to learn. We know we will get through this together. Check it out at gettingsmart.com slash getting through. Okay, now back to the show. Uh, what happened when uh, they closed schools in, uh, in Colorado? Tell us about your move to remote. Right. So um, the, I think Jeffco was really well positioned to handle this shift to remote learning. Not that it hasn't been disruptive to us, just like it has been to everybody else. Um, but when... Uh, when COVID-19 started making its way around the world, um, I'm, I'm sort of a voracious reader of um, uh, news articles, including international news. Uh, so very early on, I saw that that happening and started wondering uh, if this is as bad as people uh, are saying, what if it comes here? And we also, going back to the international benchmarking frame, I, I started looking at what other countries were doing and how they were reacting to it. Uh, as it sort of swept through, um, you know, China and then uh, and then Europe, how schools were responding to that. Um, and so I asked our leadership team uh, to pull together some principals and teachers. And I said, we need a plan for how we will shift at scale to remote learning. And so they they wrote that plan based on systems that we had in place. As I mentioned earlier, we'd really embraced technology. And so we had a lot of tools and capacity in place before that. Um, but they wrote that plan on transitioning to remote learning, shared it with our 
professionals. And when the day came, March 13th, uh, when the day came that we had to close schools in, in Colorado, uh, all across the, the state, but primarily here in the Front Range in the Denver area, um, people knew what to do. Um, I mean, we were, certainly we were um, scrambling trying to figure out how to execute all of this, but there was no panic. There was no body paralyzed and, and didn't know what steps to take because we'd shared that. And, and at schools, people had talked about, we got to make sure every kid has a device. We got to make sure that every kid uh, has got a way to contact uh, the teacher. What if they don't have internet access? What's a process by which we get it to them? How do we make sure that they've got all the passwords that they need? Um, so we, we, um, we went into that weekend after March 13th. Uh, after sending all the kids home with every device we could we could put uh, in their hands, making sure every kid went home with with something they could work work off of, um, we had one day of professional learning with the staff where we stood up um, Google Hangouts meetings and Zoom meetings and trained people on some tools, and then the Tuesday it started. Um, and I think part of our success is th in this is that we haven't and we didn't script. Uh, or tell people exactly how it had to go uh, or outline a step-by-step -step process. We put in place the tools people would need to communicate and keep working, um, some supports around that. We made sure that it all functioned. And then we relied on and encouraged the creativity of our, of our practitioners, our teachers and our principals and our students and, and parents to work together and figure it out. And, what I'd lay over all of that is that we also asked for a lot of grace. Um, we asked for that from our, our parents and teachers said, look, we're going to make mistakes uh, and we're going to, we're going to promise you that we're going to keep getting better. Um, and we, we extended that to each other too, that our educators are going to make mistakes and keep getting better. So, uh, you know, it's been, it's been a real challenge, but it's, it's also, there've also been some things going well and then looking to the future. I think that there are some, transformations happening in learning that are that are going to profoundly shift what education looks like going forward. Yeah, I'd love to talk about that, Jason. I, I know just before this call, you were doing a webinar for other system leaders. Uh, what's going to happen next year? I, I, let's start with just the logistics of school. It looks, um, any version of school next fall looks more complicated than uh, as you explained to your community, it's likely that you're going to be down anywhere between one and ten percent in terms of your your budget. So, more complicated school with less resources sounds uh, super challenging. Well, sure it is. It's we're trying to budget right now with fewer resources for next year for a system that we're not entirely sure how it's going to operate and one that we haven't operated before. So if we think about the necessity of social distancing in a school setting to have some kind of in-person learning, we'll need to drop the student-teacher ratios down to about 1 to 10, so no more than, than around 10 people in a classroom. Uh, so that by itself means that we have to pull everybody we can into an instructional role of, of, in some form uh, to create those those kinds of um, ratios. And we'll have to radically redesign the schedule of how school works uh, to keep students out of uh, out of buildings more uh, where we have sort of 
A, B, or, or even odd or AM, PM sessions. We haven't worked through exactly what that structure looks like, but that's those are the kinds of things that we're going to have to do. We also have to put in place a bunch of procedural logistical changes uh, just in terms of disease management, like screening students and staff as they come in the building every day, thinking about how we do that when kids get on and off buses, cleaning procedures, how students move and interact in a school on a day, um, how we deliver lunch, um, how we keep students from congregating together, how we might have to move teachers into students rather than moving students to teachers so that we lower the interactions. Uh, so from a logistical standpoint, it's, it's fairly complex as well. I don't know exactly how we're going to do all that yet, but I know that we've got, um, we've got people that are really smart uh, that are working on it. Jeffco has got a tradition of great leaders here, and I benefit from from all of the, those years of work that um, were here before I got I arrived. Um, so we're we're going to keep working on this and find a way to solve this problem. Um, find a way to have some version of in-person learning that's going to have to be connected to the continuation of remote learning going forward. And I I think that it is going to profoundly shake up that industrial model of education um, where everything's driven by um, subjects carved up into content and and 50 minute periods and bell schedules and master schedules i think they're go- i think this is going to be very different uh, and i think those some of those changes are going to be very positive for us in terms of thinking about asynchronous learning and student directed learning uh, in, in ways that we may never have been able to achieve if we had not had this happen. So, while I wouldn't make an argument that we would have wanted this, I do think that there are some transformations we're going to see that are being driven out of necessity. You, it seems clear that there's some new capabilities being developed in your your teachers, but also your students. Some of them are experiencing high agency learning. Some of them more self-directed learning some parents are a lot more involved in education than they've been in the past. And it seems like in, in addition to some of those new muscles that they've flexed your teachers, learners, and, and parents will even come back uh, to school in the fall with some new expectations. Do, do you have a sense of how that might play out? What kinds of new options your communities will uh, want and form? Well, we know that we'll have some of our parents that will want and need and some of our students that will want and need uh, in-person learning uh, to the extent that we can. And so we want to provide that. We know that some of our parents, possibly thousands of them, uh, will not want to send their kids back to school. They'll want to continue with remote learning in some form. And then we are likely to have scenarios where we have an outbreak in a school of COVID and have to shift that school for weeks or perhaps a whole region of the district to remote learning for a period of time uh, to, to let that cycle of the virus burn out um, before we can bring everybody back together. So uh, I, I think we're gonna we're gonna have to rely on our agility and adaptability um, over these next several weeks when we transition to or, or, or in, in into this next year when we transition to um, remote learning we didn't we didn't script or tell people how to do it so what we one of the things we saw was some of our staff were sort of trying to recreate the school that they knew 
in a remote learning setting. So they were scheduling um, lectures at a certain time, requiring everybody to do everything at the same time. And we let them do that. Um, and we had others that, that shifted to these asynchronous approaches where they were identifying resources, um, putting out information for students to react to, and then creating tasks and basically saying to the students, you figure out how you want to schedule your time and, and complete the work. And I think we've what we've seen is a shift more toward the asynchronous side, but one of the things that we really want to hang on to from the system that we left on March 13th is the power of the relationships. Um, the kids are logging in, they're trying to stay connected because they value the relationships with their teachers and their peers. So I think, I think there are some things about school as we knew it um, that are based on relationships and connection that we've got to hang on to. And there's a lot about the school that we're building now around this asynchronous and student-directed approach um, that, that's going to shift practice. So I, I think there will be some combination of what we what we loved about school as we knew it and, and the school that we're building going forward that will shape what the future of education looks like far beyond just next year. Well, Jason Glass, we uh, appreciate your leadership in, uh, in Jeffco. Um, you, you have taken a really thoughtful approach, so we appreciate all the work that went into uh, developing that approach, the, the proactive leadership that you and your team exhibited. Um, if people want to learn more about what's going on in Jeffco, where can they go? They can just uh, Google us, uh, Jeffco Public Schools, and uh, the website's right there. It's got all the information about the district on, the, on there. If you want to read more about our strategic vision, it's called Jeffco Generations. Uh, and there's a vision document in there that lays out what we would like to see happen for our kids as we prepare them for a, a lightning fast and glo globally interconnected world. Yeah, Jason, um, I, I think I was th that was the original document that I found. Um, I was so impressed with it's a we'll link it in the show notes, but it's a, a beautiful description of what uh, you hope your learners leave Jeffco with. Um, they can also follow you on Twitter at at CEO Jason Glass. That's right. That's right. So I look forward to connecting with people on that and listening to uh, thoughts or iterations, critiques of our our direction and vision here. We we certainly don't have it all figured out, but uh, we've got we've got good people working on it, and and um, you know we stand on the shoulders of giants here. There are all kinds of talent and good thinking that went into this community that we we want to honor, but also push through to that next practice, that transformation. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Tom. Thank you to Dr. Glass for joining us for this week's episode. We appreciate his leadership in Jefferson County and the work he and his team are doing to support learners during this challenging time. For more on school districts making the successful transition to remote learning, check out episode 250 with Tom Rooney from Lindsay Unified and Scott Rowe from Huntley Community School District. I've got it linked in the show notes and on our blog. All right, that's all we have for you today, listeners. But before you go, don't forget to rate and review the podcast. Uh, it helps us get better and it helps more people find us. Thanks for tuning in. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Jessica signing off.